Hello, humans. My name is Jesse, aka The Bizzle, and welcome to Bizzlecast episode 5.99, um, the third and final part of my Avengers Age of Ultron series. Um, I wasn't sure I was going to do a third one, but having seen it numerous times, there's a bunch of stuff I wanted to talk about that didn't get a chance to, and you know, now I have some hindsight as well, um, since it's been a few weeks since it's been out, um, and so I called it 5.99 to make sure that this is the last Avengers Age of Ultron podcast, and I will primarily be talking about three things, um, the comedy of the movie, which I've talked about before, but there were a lot of kind of, you know, spoilery uh, humor bits um, that I can now reveal. This is a spoilery podcast, so be warned. Um, the second part is going to talk about the action of Age of Ultron and how it sets a new bar, and also talk about Captain America the Winter Soldier, which also set a new bar for action, but in a very different way, and some of the similarities and differences between the two movies. And I'm going to finish... Um, the podcast and the podcast mini-series with a um, scene, uh, or, or talking about a scene and everything that went into the scene, which, you know, is my favorite scene in the movie, um, and it's the scene in the final battle when Sokovia is flying, when Jeremy Renner gives what's normally called the hero speech to Scarlet Witch, who's, you know, sort of losing her mind and scared as shit about what's going on around her, and it just, there's so many parts of the movie that, um, you know, uh, climax in that scene, in that interaction, so I'm gonna end on that, um, because I think that really represents Joss Whedon in so many ways. Alright, here we go. So, I talked a bit about the comedy of the movie and how great it was, which is not surprising knowing Joss Whedon, who's a hilarious writer and knows how to get jokes out of his actors, even actors who may not have a lot of comedic experience, and not only get it out of the actors, but in a way that there's sort of a shared universe of a sense of humor um, among the characters, and even a guy like Thor, who really doesn't fit in for a lot of obvious reasons with the rest of the gang, as I mentioned, starting to develop a great sense of humor that is compatible with the rest of the Avengers crew. And I wasn't able to talk about a lot of the really funny parts because a lot of the really funny parts I either just didn't want to spoil to you because they're hilarious or because they are during a part of the story or plot that would have required spoilers or would have given things away. So I'm going to go through a quick list here. first one is when they are having the party at Stark um, or Avengers Tower after their first battle towards the beginning of the movie and so many characters from the Marvel Cinematic Universe are there, even non-Avengers, but at the end of the night, it's all the main players who are hanging around, lounging, you know, probably a little hungover, or I think a little drunk still, um, and just joking around. You got Jeremy Renner, Hawkeye, playing with drumsticks, and people are sipping cocktails, and they're just all very comfortable and loose with each other, especially because they don't realize that Ultron is about to come into their lives in about five minutes after the scene is over, but... Um, everyone's giving Thor a hard time because, um, you know, uh, 
he is theoretically the only one who can wield his hammer, Mjolnir. He actually had to earn that from his father in the first Thor movie, who cast him out to Earth and wouldn't let him hold the hammer, have his powers, and um, till he proved himself worthy. But since then, it's been his hammer. And so Thor, of course, offers for anyone to jump on in and try and move the hammer. Um, Hawkeye was the first, just because he was sort of the most aggressive and and making fun of Thor, and he can't. And Hawkeye, of course, can't move it. And then Tony Stark, cocky as all hell as usual, and so lovable in that role. Sort of suavely stands up, unbuttons his jacket, says, "Oh, it's it's just all physics." And he thinks if he wraps his hand around the leather handle and then pulls with the leverage, he will get it up, um, if you will. Um, in fact, there's a running gag about Thor's hammer throughout the movies, and it's um, sort of phallic uh, connotations. But uh, two seconds later, he's got the hand from the Iron Man suit using you know really advanced thrusters to try and pull it up, and then Don G there with his um, war machine hand, so the two uh, powered suit hands, they can't, Dodd Cheadle's yelling at him to, to represent, come on, represent, man, let's do this. And then it's Captain America's turn, and I kind of knew this was coming. I can't remember if this was specifically spoiled for me, or just that I know these characters in movies and comics so well that it just made sense that I wasn't that surprised that Captain America was able to kind of jiggle the hammer a little bit. Although, Thor is the only one among the gang that even notices that it moves briefly, and it's easy to miss as an audience member if you don't watch closely. I happened to catch it the first time because I was sort of expecting it or thought it might happen, but if I wasn't, I might have missed it the first time. And again... Chris Hemsworth, with a very subtle touch, just has this look of pure, you know, horror on his face about what it could mean if Captain America could hold the hammer. And, you know, Steve Rogers doesn't realize that he moved it slightly, or if he did, he didn't say anything. But I don't think he knew. And he just kind of smiles politely at Thor. And Thor goes from his frown to a fake smile very quickly. You can just see him silently sigh in relief that Cap was not able to move it. And then, of course, the Hulk, um, or I should say Bruce Banner, who at this point in the movie is pretty relaxed as far as Bruce Banner gets, stands on the table and pulls on it with two hands while screaming and he jumps back and you know makes it seem like he's angry and going to turn into the Hulk but really he's just really relaxed among friends and everyone sort of smiles nervously um, and the joke doesn't quite land um, but it's a very adorable moment and then of course Thor um, it picks it up and 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 Tony, you know, it claims that it's just a fingerprint recognition. Basically, <laughs> they could steal Thor's fingerprints. They could pick up the hammer, and he says, "No, no, you're just not worthy, any of you." And of course, um, later in the movie, the Vision, who we'll talk about, does manage to wield the hammer in an amazing moment, which was built up by this early scene and nobody being able to pick up the hammer unless you're worthy. And all of a sudden, this this new android superhero of incredible power um, is the second person to be able to pick up the hammer 
um, that we know of, uh, other than Thor's father, Odin, who gave it to him. So that pays off, um, like so many Joss Whedon's jokes do. The evil uh, Hydra leader, um, Baron von Strucker, they get a photo of him having gotten killed by Ultron with peace written in his blood on the wall, which um, Tony Stark refers to as a Banksy on the scene. Uh, I really haven't been to a lot of screenings where people get that joke, and maybe, you know, being a, a Wesleyan snob or whatever. Um, I'm not even into, like, modern art and stuff, but I at least got the joke and worked perfectly well for Tony Stark. Um, there are a few Ultron uh, jokes or, or humor moments, um, and as I discussed, he's really hilarious, or I should say Spader playing the voice is really, really funny, and some people criticize it for being too funny, but a lot of the jokes actually are character revelations about Ultron, how insecure he is, um, and how he's still learning. Um, when he's buying all the vibranium, this super high-quality metal from Ulysses Claw, who is introduced in this movie, and who is the main villain of the Black Panther, who will first appear next year and look at his own solo movie a couple years down, and Ulysses Claw, played by Andy Serkis, who's phenomenal, is an arms dealer, basically, who has all this vibranium from this made-up African country, Wakanda, and that is really the only place you can get it. Um, Captain America's shield is made of vibranium, and that's why it's basically unbreakable. It seems to be at least as unbreakable as adamantium in terms of the Wolverine, um, maybe more so, and will play a huge role going forward, and, and whatever, it's, we won't get into the vibranium too much. But um, he doesn't want to sell to Ultron, even cause he, just because he doesn't like being threatened, even though, that, even though he knows he could be getting killed by Ultron any second. And Ultron basically, you know, downloads hundreds of billions of dollars into this guy's bank account instantaneously through the internet. And Ultron's just like, you know, now you're rich. He sort of looks at this, wow, finance is so weird. And, you know, for a giant robot who has access to the entire electronic and digital infrastructure of the world to find finance weird, which you know, is itself very digitized at this point, is, is a pretty funny um, comment on, on society. and something that I always say. As someone who's good at math and is into science, I, I have no understanding of w how and why finance works. And so for Ultron to be so advanced and be perplexed, um, not by the, you know, the, the, the physical movements of money, which he can, you know, do himself in, in two seconds at any point, but just the idea that, you know, finance is such a weird institution that even a super advanced AI can't understand it. And when he breaks Ulysses Claw's arm, because Claw accuses him of being a, a puppet of Tony Stark, who created him, but he hates Tony Stark, he says, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's going to heal just fine. And there's this brief moment, this evil robot is trying to show concern for breaking an arms dealer's arm off, and, uh, um, and so he has got a lot of great lines like that through the movie. One of the big turning points of the movie happens right after the scene with Ulysses Claw, where they're in uh, Africa. It's not clear whether it's actually Wakanda, but they're in Africa uh, in the setup for Black Panther um, because of this whole vibranium thing and how dangerous that could be if Ultron got a hold of it. So the Avengers show up, and this is when the uh, this is when the Scarlet Witch, played by Elizabeth Olsen, first. Um, puts her spell on everybody, and they all have crazy visions, and it's pretty dark and has repercussions throughout, and Captain America's vision is of 
a world where he never went into the ice, where he survived the war, and he was a hero, and he ended up with the love of his life, who's now uh, dying from, from Alzheimer's, as we learned in The Winter Soldier, Peggy Carter, who is just this beautiful and tough and badass and brilliant woman who works with Cap during World War II with some of the undercover, underground stuff that they were doing. And he grew to love her, and you know now she's, she's old and, and decrepit, um, but he's still haunted by that. And so in his vision, um, they're dancing uh, in a ball room, uh, and you know, she says, can I have the dance now? And um, Cap is very aware that it's, it's a simulation going on in his head, um, there's still a very quick shot where he dances with her, but he's able to pull himself out of the dream much quicker than the others are, and it just kind of shows how strong mentally he is and how grounded in reality he is, that as much as he wanted to embrace the vision, all the people in the room just disappear, and he wakes up, and he's the least affected by this whole process of being mind-controlled by the Scarlet Witch, and a little bit later, when him and Tony are discussing it, Tony says, you know, you're you're really the only one who came out of those uh, Scarlet Witch reveries without a whole lot of damage, seemingly, and Captain America <laughs> says, you got a problem with that? Uh, and Tony says, uh, I, I don't trust a guy without a dark side. Call me old-fashioned. And Cap just goes, you just haven't seen it yet. Which is, you know, totally a setup for Captain America Civil War, where Captain America is going to have to have a little bit of a dark side because he's going to be fighting against Tony, and things are going to get really dark for him. And uh, there's a lot of little touches, too, for Whedon fans. Um, so after uh, Jarvis, who is Tony Stark, Iron Man's uh, artificial intelligence we think is killed by Ultron early on because Ultron is scared of a competing AI, which is also very advanced. Later in the movie, he is put into the body of the new superhero that is called the Vision and so, you know, becomes corporeal for the first time. And uh, so in the final mission, Tony needs a new AI for his battle suit to, you know, be the be the sort of you know, Star Trekky kind of voice telling him all the technical stuff and where the fault lines are and what the energy levels are and yada 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 yada. And they realize that Ultron is basically rocket boosting the city of Sokovia, where the movie begins and where it ends, and where the twins, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, come from. And they realize that Ultron's gonna basically throw it up in the air and then shoot it down and create a meteor impact that will cause the extinction of mankind, um, which was hinted in his obsession with meteors and uh, with extinction-level events, but it's kind of cool when you see it, and the Avengers are just like, uh, and Iron Man asks Friday, who's this new AI, what's going on, and Friday just says, Sokovia's going for a ride. And unless you're a super hardcore Joss Whedon fan, you wouldn't understand this line, Sokovia is going for a ride. But beginning of Serenity, the movie that spun off from um, Firefly, Joss Whedon's TV series, then they made it into a movie, uh, Summer Glau, who's this you know young girl who has crazy superpowers, a little bit like the Scarlet Witch, early on in the movie is sort of semi-forced to go on a mission. Um, with uh, the crew, which she doesn't normally do, even though she has um, 
you know, developing pretty strong both fighting powers and telepathic powers. And so the captain, Malcolm Reynolds, who's running the ship, who is a good guy, but the situations have just been getting so hairy for them. He needs every advantage, and she's an advantage. And um, when her brother asks her if she knows what's going on, because she's really out of it half the time because what's going on in her brain, she just says, we're going for a ride. Whoever the woman was who played the voice of Friday, which is Iron Man's new AI, who said Sokovia is going for a ride, she says it the exact same way in terms of her tone and the delivery as Summer Glau, who's playing River Tam in Serenity. Same exact way that Summer Glau does it. And, and it gave me sort of chills in a weird way hearing that because... You know, Joss Whedon, while very self-referential, is usually not self-referential between his different properties, as far as I know. But this is one of those moments in Avengers Age of Ultron where, because this is his last Marvel movie, at least for now, and even though he's only, quote-unquote, done two movies, they happen to be, by the way, The Avengers and The Avengers 2, which are the biggest and most expensive and most financially successful um, and arguably artistically successful, um, that now that he's leaving, there are some great Joss Whedon moments throughout the movie that are very much, you know, him sort of giving a wave to the fans in a way that's not mocking the material, um, that worked great within the material, but that basically says, this is me, this is Joss Whedon, this is what I love to do. You know, the action scenes are great and everything else, but I love these little kind of self-referential jokes that the fans will get, but will also be funny if you don't get it. And so the Serenity reference, um, I just really geeked out on that. Thor, um, of all the characters, I think was the most surprising from a humor standpoint, not because I don't think Hemsworth can pull it off, and there are some great um, comedic moments in both Thor movies, and he has a few good lines um, in the first Avengers movie, but in the same way that I said Joss Whedon challenged himself in this film when it came to Hawkeye, who was not a major player in the first film, and who in this film is sort of the dramatic um, center um, or sort of nexus of both what's going on plot-wise, but especially character-wise and drama-wise. He challenged himself to make Thor a little bit more like one of the Avengers, and it makes sense because in the first movie, he never really met any of them before. Now they've been fighting together for the last few years, and so, as I mentioned, he's sort of developing um, uh, uh, the Tony Stark slash Avengers style of sarcastic, witty, playful humor. Um, and he's got some great stuff in this movie. I talked about the the hammer competition. Another one is, you know, Bruce Banner, after being the Hulk in the first uh, scene of the movie, where he totally kicks butt, does not go out of his way to hurt people, but is crucial to them succeeding. We find that on the plane ride back um, after that fight that he wasn't expecting to actually fight. But so we sort of learned that uh, you know, we can extrapolate that they didn't think the fight was going to be as crazy as it ended up being um and so you know scarlett johansson aka black widow who's really developing a crush for him and is the one who has managed to learn how to t uh, tame him if you will with with his permission and involvement where they have something called the lullaby where when they're ready for him to turn back to bruce banner for whatever reason um, she's developed rapport with him, and she slowly reaches out her hand and does this very gentle, loving, intimate um, touch 
across the back of his hand and then on his forearm. And that is sort of a conditioned response that they must have worked on in between movies so that, you know, when they don't need the Hulk anymore, they don't need Bruce Banner to keep suffering because he hates being the Hulk. He's doing it to be a good guy. He's such a good heart and they need him. And so that they don't have to, you know, wait for him to, you know, go to sleep, as they say, that, that, that Scarlet sort of puts him to sleep with the lullaby. But he's still shaken by the whole thing. And Scarlet's trying to lighten the situation. And she says, Thor, you know, status report on... The Hulk and Thor, of course, you know, thinking completely in Thor, you know, warrior terms is like the halls of Valhalla filled with the screams of his victims, <laughs> which is the last thing that Bruce Banner wants to hear. Um, and then Thor tries to backpedal immediately upon realizing that he completely blew his chance to, you know, help calm Mark Ruffalo down, uh, Bruce Banner, and he says, no, you know, not screams of death, but broken limbs and gout, and um, just, a, just a horrible recovery, but um, enthusiastic, uh, nonetheless, and then uh, he has a similar kind of moment, I talked in the uh, episode 5.5, which is my uh, Ultron review, I talked about um, how uh, Don Cheadle, who plays War Machine, who in the comics is Iron Man's best buddy and, and right-hand man, and also has an awesome suit of armor, and I didn't mention in the review, because it was a non-spoiler review, that Cheadle's appearance at the party at the beginning was hilarious, but he also appears at the end in a in very, very, very needed situation when the robot army situation is getting out of control, and he needs to get in there because Iron Man's... Um, perfectly equipped to take care of them, but he's trying not to have the city be, you know, launched into the earth and create an extinction level event. So War Machine's there to help out. And there's a great quick exchange when Iron Man does come out to help uh, War Machine fight against some of the robots that are getting away. And Don Cheadle, (laughs) referencing, you know, earlier says, oh, this is going to be a good story. Iron Man just says, hope you can keep up. And War Machine says, what, you don't think I can hold my own? And Tony Stark, with a big smile, uh, just says, if we get through this, I'll hold your own. (laughs) And War Machine is just like, you had to make it weird, didn't you? Um, Yet another penis joke in the movie. Uh, Very underrated how many penis jokes there are in the movie. So, but in in his joke that I talk about in 5.5, I say nobody, he's talking, you know, a big game type story about, you know, dropping a tank and the feet of some general and just being like, boom, you're looking for this? And Stark and Thor, who are listening, are smiling but not laughing. And Cheadle is just like, what? What? Why am I even talking with you guys? Like, you, you know, you never laugh at my jokes. And Thor goes, oh no, that was a, was a very, very funny story. Very, very funny indeed. Um, and Cheadle is just like, great save, man, great save. Um, and so, you know, Thor just can't help being Thor, and it's easy to criticize Hemsworth for being sort of two-dimensional, but the character in the comics is two-dimensional. He's a great warrior, and deep down, he believes in doing the right thing, but he also has an outsized ego, and, 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 you know, uh, and just a kind of, you know, aggressive and, and warlike nature to him. Um, it's not that he courts war, even though he did in the first Thor, but he learned his lesson. Um, but when war is there, he savors it. Um, and, um, you know, he kind of is like the 
the big dumb jock that he looks like and that he's like in the comics of course he's the big dumb jock that everyone pretty much likes because he's just lovable and a good guy um, other than his brother Loki who hates that whole aspect of him but you know he's not the smartest guy um, he's very driven and very focused when there's a mission at hand and some people say the same thing about you know Captain America but we've really seen now over the course of most of his movies that you know in scenes where Captain America seems to be less than a genius, it really has to do with him just catching up on modern technology um, all these years later and not understanding certain technical terms. But he, um, Captain America, that is, is by far the smartest in assessing a situation, assessing the weapons and the people that he has at his disposal and assessing the enemy's forces and coming up with a plan and in that way he's even way smarter than Tony Stark um, who just doesn't have that kind of tactical combat training that Cap gets in World War II um, and it's carried over and is now with all of his experiences he's not just the leader of the team because he's the most moral guy although that's part of it he's also the leader of the team because he's the best tactician he knows exactly what needs to get done and he's a natural leader who gets people to do stuff that he wants without being coercive um, and he knows how to deal with each person specifically Thor in both the comics and the movie is meant to be sort of two-dimensional that's just who he is he's a Norse god it's ridiculous to begin with and so what Joss has done so well with Thor is have him be you know um, starting to get a little bit more self-aware at the things that he says and how he comes across and uh, you know even when he's insensitive it's clear that it's not happening uh, you know, on purpose. He, he does love people, and as he says in the first Avengers, you know, the Earth is under my protection, and part of that is because he loves Jane Foster, played by Natalie Portman, his love for her and his other friends on Earth, but he does genuinely have a sense of, of love and respect and protectiveness f for and over humanity, and so he's really trying, and he, it, there's just some great moments throughout the movie where, you know, he's, he's a little over the top and then tries to scale back, but by then it's too late. Of course, the Thor part that I think that got the most laughs by far in the movie is when um, the Scarlet Witch is attempting to manipulate his mind, and he calls it out. He says, you know, the, the witch is, is trying to get in people's heads. I'm not sure a human can handle it, but fortunately, I am mighty. And of course, as soon as he says, I am mighty, he steps right into hallucinogenic vision of um, a very um, dark and just bizarre vision of Asgard, um, where, where the Norse gods all live, and a vision that haunts him as is, is much as the the humans are haunted by uh, the visions, um, and his actually continues later in the movie when he goes into this magical pool so that he can revisit the vision and, and understand the apocalyptic overtones um, of the vision. And of course, the mighty Thor is the moniker for him, and there's a whole, you know, many of the, the the books or series or whatever you want to call them in the comics refer to him as the mighty Thor even in the title so that's a nod to the comic books but of course just the way he delivers the I am mighty and two seconds later is completely unmighty um is just classic Thor um and again Joss just understanding how to make things funny to the general audience while still getting some great comic book stuff in there 
I could go on about the humor all day, partially because it's great and partially just because there are an insane number of jokes and running gags and uh, what I call character-building hum- humor moments. But I will quickly say that in my review of Age of Ultron, I said that this movie was quite a bit funnier than The Avengers, and I stick by that. But now that I've seen it a whole bunch of times, I will say that, you know, the best three or four or five comic or humorous moments in the original Avenger movie are probably better, or I should say are probably funnier than most of the lines in Age of Ultron, but Age of Ultron has a lot more jokes and they land at a very high frequency. And I think if you flip the movies the way Joss Whedon wanted to and make Age of Ultron the first, but have that be the first time they're teaming up and aren't fully comfortable with one another, both within the story as characters, but as actors as well. But now they're so comfortable with each other that even some jokes, you know, that are sort of B or even kind of C plus jokes get a bump because of the chemistry of the cast and because of the shared storylines now and how much they've been through together. And so I still think the movie's funnier overall, but there are just some, you know, big comedic moments in the first movie that are classic and are funnier than anything else out there. So I've talked about Joss Whedon's comedic sense and extreme talent in in crafting and executing humor over numerous podcasts. I mean, all the Avengers podcasts, and then one of my favorite of the pre-Bizzlecast podcasts, when it was called Cast, I talked about uh, Firefly and Serenity, which was an amazing, small um, science fiction uh, TV series, short-lived, and then a fantastic movie that had a cult audience, and how, despite the fact that his budgets are so much bigger, the projects are so much bigger, the stakes are so much higher, he still kind of approaches it the same way. But I want to do a short little bit on the action of this movie, because it was incredibly good. Captain America the Winter Soldier, a year ago, set a new bar for action, not only in comic book movies, but in movies in general. And because it was such a well-crafted story, and the character elements were so fabulous, um, you sort of lose track that the whole movie is really a big action movie because there's enough s- slower parts where you get character development and the action is manifested in so many forms but ultimately it's street fighting it's not really a superhero movie in the traditional sense yes Captain America is super strong and super durable and has ridiculous shield throwing skills which have no basis in reality in terms of physics but work completely within the Marvel Cinematic Universe and just accomplish sort of action sequences and and even um, certain fights, individual fights, in ways that wouldn't be possible without the shield. But Black Widow, although she is an assassin and a spy and who has, you know, incredible fighting ability with both guns and hand-to-hand And you do have Anthony Mackie towards the end as the Falcon, but his flight suit isn't a superpower. It's really a stripped-down version of the Iron Man suit. He's still using guns. And, you know, there are so many good scenes in that movie, from Cap taking on, like, 20 bad guys inside an elevator, and 
the initial opening scene where they take down a, a rogue boat um, which has been captured by terrorists um, and the sort of second to last major action scene takes place on the city streets of D.C., which is really Cleveland. They do a good job of selling it as D.C. And it's just a massive street fight with tons of bad guys and all sorts of stuff going on with cars and hand-to-hand fights, gun uh, gunfights, shootouts, and it's just so realistic. Uh, there's very little CGI um, in Captain America the Winter Soldier that's apparent. You know, obviously the giant helicarriers and stuff are, are CGI, and there's some CGI aspects to the shield and to Anthony Mackie's um, flying suit apparatus. But when it comes to the hand-to-hand combat, there is any CGI. It's completely seamless and invisible. And in that way, the movie's way more like you know, the Bourne movies than the Marvel movies, but I'm not the only one to point out that the quality of action over such a long period and so many scenarios and settings in Cap the Winter Soldier is really superior to any action that I've seen probably since The Matrix. And, you know, The Matrix had its own sort of superhero elements. Um, Even though they were inside a computer program, they were able to kind of um, manifest or actualize um, kind of some superhero powers, especially Neo, of course, who can fly and, you know, has all the Superman stuff going. But not only was the choreography in The Winter Soldier amazing, but it wasn't shaky cam. There were close-ups, but there were a lot of wide shots from the side, old school fighting, which helps to sell it because, you know, you can really mask a lot of mediocre action elements by just moving the camera around and having random things blow up. Cap uh, Winter Soldier, you know, every part of every fight scene was totally clear, totally made sense logically within the framework of the fight itself and the wider story. Avengers Age of Ultron, the action is so different, it's really hard to make a comparison to Winter Soldier. It's obviously much less of a street fight because you have people with superpowers. And on top of that, they're fighting a huge robot army, right? So it's not going to be fisticuffs a whole lot in that scenario. But, you know, as great as, like, the Captain America shield throws were in The Winter Soldier, Joss just finds new and exciting ways to use them. And I think Avengers Age of Ultron is the best in the Marvel Cinematic Universe in terms of overall action. While it does have some hand-to-hand combat... It's mostly superpowers, and, you know, superpowers are so hard to pull off from a CGI standpoint that even the original Avengers, which for the most part looks amazing, and had to really go further than any movie ever in terms of the amount of superheroes and superpowers going on. But in this movie, Joss steps it up again, and he takes some of the lessons from the Russo brothers who directed The Winter Soldier and who are directing Captain America Civil War next year. But as I mentioned in my review of Age of Ultron, this is by far the most comic book-y movie ever. And when I say that, it's not just about sort of the dialogue or, you know, that the characters are somehow more comic booky than other movies. You know, Joss sort of goes out of his way to make sure to ground even the most unbelievable of characters. The, the characters are the hardest to believe, like Thor, for example, does a great job in grounding them and showing that even the most powerful superheroes have their limitations. But there are so many kinds of fights and so many ways that they shot the fights, and when I talk about it, being from panel to screen, straight from the comic book. I didn't mean that Joss Whedon is taking actual frames um, and using them in the movie, 
Although, he's definitely influenced. I mean, not only is Joss a major comic book fan, I can't believe I haven't mentioned this in three Avengers podcasts, which is that he wrote a very, very highly regarded X-Men series a few years back before he was even on the Avengers project, which is considered one of the better X-Men series in the last decade or two. Um, the X-Men, when they're at their best, I think is still the best of all comic books just because the themes are so serious. There's so many characters with so many cool powers and sort of the political and social commentary is very, very, very omnipresent in usually a good way in the X-Men comic books, but because there's so many and so many spin-offs, it's impossible to have quality writing and art all the time. But Joss's take was phenomenal, and he just really gets the aesthetics. What is just so mind-blowing about Age of Ultron, and I think is going to make it highly rewatchable, is that Sometimes action movies are so action-packed that you just get numb to it, and it actually makes it less rewatchable, especially once it's not on the big screen. But because the action is so creative and so well-filmed and just brilliantly imagined from, you know, a, a specific Black Widow move to the way that you'll have multiple or all the Avengers fighting together, it really takes from comic books in ways that even the first Avengers didn't, you know, and it adds a little bit of cartoonishness. For example, one of the really cool sort of um, action elements is that in the first Avengers, there's a really cool scene which I described in an earlier podcast where all the heroes are sort of fighting together for the first time and Iron Man fires his, you know, laser blast off Captain America's shield and just takes out a ton of enemies. And that was really the only kind of direct, well, I shouldn't say only because there was Thor and Hulk taking down the giant dinosaur, but you could tell that Joss was still sort of trying to get a feel for, okay, how can I have these guys not only fight together on the same side in the same battle, but actually combine their powers, which, if you're a comic book reader, is one of the coolest things. Because it can get boring if you just see their powers one-on-one, but when you see them work together, and what I love is that rather than continue to come up with more Iron Man, Captain America stuff, Josh realized that the image and the power of Cap's shield and Thor's hammer had so many possibilities, and there were numerous such instances in Age of Ultron, and each one was super creative and super badass. And this goes back to the slight cartoonishness of the movie, which I liked in the opening battle against Hydra in Eastern Europe. They're trying to get Hawkeye back to the plane when the battle's almost over because he's injured and they need to get through an advancing tank and soldiers. And, you know, the soldiers are marching in single file line, um, which is very convenient. But Joss, understanding that that's convenient, decides to make it a joke where... Um, Thor says to Cap, oh, it looks like they're uh, lining up for us. And Cap says, well, they're excited. And in one movement, Cap puts up his shield, turns it slightly to the side, and Thor just bangs on the shield, and a giant shockwave of, of sound or, or, or vibration just ripples through them all, takes out all the soldiers, and also, like, flips the tank over. Now, you know, you'd think if it flips the tank over, it would basically vaporize the soldiers, but this is how it is in the comics, and and the the whole point is, it doesn't have to be uber-realistic. It just needs to look cool and, 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 you know, give you that giddy feeling. You know, there's so much, uh, you know, realism in action movies that it's kind of nice to have a movie like this where you know you have these huge epic action scenes and every single part of every fight 
is so creative and so different and that's a combination of Josh's imagination and the production team and an interesting thing that I never pointed out before if you listen to the audio director commentary from the Firefly series uh, Josh does a couple episodes where he does commentary he talks about how he hates shooting action and what he means is not that he hates action because his stuff always has action but just that as an artist as from a directorial standpoint, he just really gets into shooting the dramatic stuff. And so what I think happened in Avengers, and even more here, is Joss came up with a general outline of what was going to happen in these battles and which battles were going to happen, and he handed over the production team, and the production team, with their big budget and loaded with talent, just came up with some awesome, awesome, awesome stuff. And then, you know, there would be what they call previs, where they do a computer-generated uh, very basic model and sort of every step along the way, you know, Josh would approve or or, or disapprove or, or, or make suggestions or whatever. And Josh is such a team player. I don't think Ego played uh, a major role in this, and I think he wanted to concentrate on the dramatic stuff. And, of course, he writes all the funny um, lines that happen during the battle, but in terms of the visuals, my guess, just by following filmmaking and Marvel Universe and uh, action sci-fi movies in general, is that he really let production team just go to town and use their own imaginations. And, you know, if you're not blown away by the opening scene of Age of Ultron, where, you know, you can tell that the that the uh, heroes have been kicking ass together for a while now and really know each other both on a personal standpoint but also from a tactical fighting standpoint. And I mentioned the, you know, the hammer and the shield and, you know, Hawkeye and Black Widow, who have been working together for many, many years, have great scenes throughout the movie where they combine their very unsuperhero-y powers. Um, I mean, of course, they're still great fighters, have a great instinct for, for fighting, but um, have to be a lot more creative, unlike the Hulk, who just runs through a bugger. Um, and that was great. I mean, you know, when, when uh, Jeremy Renner Hawkeye goes down in that battle... Scarlet, uh, Black Widow, is trying to keep him protected and keep herself protected long enough to get him out. She just goes, can someone take care of that bunker, please? And a split second later, you just see Hulk just run straight through the bunker and just destroy the whole thing. He doesn't even have to punch it or kick it or anything. He just runs straight through it. And Scarlet just goes, thank you. And, you know, I mean... The, the action just keeps moving, and, and all the characters get to show off their stuff. They do different things, like, you know, Thor does some hand-to-hand -hand stuff with kicking and punching. As much as I love the hammer, it's nice to see him just, you know, use his fists and, and legs. Um, you know, in some ways, the first scene was great because it was against humans, and for the most of the rest of the movie, they're pretty much just fighting robots, either Ultron himself or the robot army that he constructed. But it doesn't matter because it looks so good. In terms of panel to screen, the Hulkbuster fight in Johannesburg, um, or is filmed in Johannesburg, takes place in Wakanda or somewhere in Africa, where the Scarlet Witch has gotten inside Bruce Banner's head and screwed with it and made him go into a total raging fury, which he had never really done for a long time because he had learned to control it. But this was, you know, beyond his ability to control. And he and Iron Man had created something called Veronica, which you find out was a precautionary measure against just such occasion. And it's a giant floating satellite that, you know, one must think is orbiting wherever the Hulk is at all times, because it's right above Africa. I don't think that's a coincidence. And so when Tony realizes that the Hulk has no control, he calls in what they call Veronica. And Veronica is 
in the comics called the Hulkbuster suit. It's a giant Iron Man suit. It's actually the suit so big you can barely you know see Iron Man. He's actually bigger than the Hulk, and just has tons of weapons and just you know a ridiculous amount of defenses and armor. And needless to say, the two of them just go at it. You know, running, flying, kicking, punching, falling, smacking, dragging all over the city of Johannesburg. And as I mentioned in previous podcasts about the Avengers: Age of Ultron, is that it, one of the reasons it's so epic is not just that it goes all around the world, but that it really takes place over the entire city of wherever they are. So there's Johannesburg, there's Seoul in Korea, there's the uh, made-up Eastern European city of Sokovia, which I think was filmed in northern Italy, I believe. There was some stuff filmed in England as well. I'm not sure which was which, but again, takes place over the entire city. And, you know, what makes the Hulkbuster fight between Iron Man and the Hulk so great is that Iron Man knows that this isn't really Bruce Banner's fault, and he's really trying to reason with him, even though it's hard to reason with the Hulk in general, but especially when he's in a mad, enraged, mind-controlled, or mind-screwed by, you know, someone else, that Iron Man realizes that he has to unlike the lullaby, really actually knock out the Hulk and put him to sleep. Because when the Hulk goes to sleep or or gets unconscious, he turns back to Bruce Banner automatically. And so eventually he ends up picking him up and dropping him down like a 40-story building, pushing his head into the ground and then just punching his lights out. And, you know, it's really sad because they don't show it directly. It's pretty obvious the Hulk killed a lot of people and, you know, Bruce Banner is just horrified after that happens. But, uh, you know, that really just took from the comics in terms of the angles and the sounds. I know you don't have sounds in comics, but you do have, you know, fam, pow, plack, thwack, whatever. And Josh just knows all those little details. And he must have just been like a little kid. I don't care what he said about not liking to direct action. He must have been having a ball in this. And then you have the fight in South Korea, which is the second-to-last fight. And you can sort of know it's the second-to-last fight when it's happening because you know the last fight is going to be in Sokovia in Eastern Europe against Ultron. But because the other Avengers are doing other stuff, it falls to Cap and Hawkeye and Black Widow to you know, prevent disaster in South Korea and Seoul. And because Cap is, you know, super strong, but still kind of a street fighter, as previously mentioned, and Hawkeye and Black Widow lack superpowers, although they're, you know, great combatants um, when it comes to, you know, the bow and arrow or the guns or or just hand-to-hand combat, that this is sort of what I consider or think of as the Winter Soldier scene in the movie because of the nature of the relative lack of superpowers, even with all the robots, you have Cap just taking punishment after punishment. He's using the shield. He's ripping off robots' heads. Black Widow um, is trying to get the cradle, which is the device where Ultron is trying to create an uh, android version of himself that would become the vision later, but that he had a vision for. He would... uh, ultimately, as big and strong as he was, he was obsessed with the human form and obsessed with the possibility of an android, which is a mixture of a human and um, a machine. Actually, a cyborg is probably more of a correct term, although I do understand why they use the word android. 
Ultron also discovers that the um, scepter, Loki's scepter from the first movie, which he now has, uh, with the they call the cr- uh, the cradle of the scepter, this glowing blue energy, actually houses the yellow mind gem, which I talked about earlier, is one of the Infinity Stones, and is going to play a big part leading up to the finale in a few years. But that the the mind gem is the final piece to creating Vision, and and, and luckily for, for the Avengers and for the fans too they're able to get a hold of the unfinished vision before Ultron can download himself onto it. And the mind gem, which we learned early, is operates like a r- extremely advanced artificial intelligence, is the last piece of the puzzle for the vision, who may or may not have an actual brain. It's probably some sort of computer thing, but the mind gem is where he gets his intelligence and his power. And so, you know, I love that Joss got a chance to do the street fight scene, but even then... That's the scene where Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, or I should say that's the section or the act where Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver realize what Ultron is up to, decide to change sides, are horrified at all the casualties, and Cap, being Cap, and a tactical master and natural leader, as I mentioned before, assesses them. He's not happy with the two of them because they cause a lot of these problems, but recognizes immediately their sincerity. And not only that, they are desperate to win this battle, and there's a lot of civilian lives at stake. And so Quicksilver probably saves hundreds of lives by just, you know, zooming all over the place with this careening train that's out of control, gets them out of the way and then you see the first display of Scarlet Witch's true power in which her red energy waves or energy fields are able to stop a giant train through those powers and so you get the street fight but you also get the cool superhero stuff. The best part of the movie both dramatically and maybe even comedically happened to correspond coincide with the most Whedon-esque part of the movie. In the final battle, after switching sides to realizing how evil Ultron was, now we have Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch helping out the Avengers in any way they can. The city is being destroyed by Ultron, but is also literally lifting off as Ultron attempts to use the city of Sokovia as a giant meteor basically to create an extinction level event and so the Avengers now with Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver are trying to both save civilians that are on the (laughs) flying city um, but also to prevent this thing from crashing to the earth and killing billions and billions of people but as much crazy stuff as Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver have seen over the course of the movie, first with the bad guys and now aligning with the good guys, this is a whole nother level of insanity. And, you know, they're kids. They may be in their early 20s, but they're kids, they're sheltered kids who picked the wrong side just because they were angry, had reasons to do so, now have begun the process of atoning for their mistakes, I guess you would say. But they are young and they are inexperienced and they are not used to seeing stuff like this. And while the Scarlet Witch, who in a very mutant-like way gets more powerful the more angry and upset she gets, which focuses her power, while she's certainly holding her own and um, contributing to the cause in a major way, she becomes overwhelmed as the waves of, of robots just keep coming at her and she starts to kind of 
lose her cool a little bit. She's not crying, but she's sort of whimpering or, or just sort of, you know, shaking. You can, you can sort of hear in her voice um, how she is of being affected and so scared um, about what's going on and doesn't know what to do about it. And while she's sort of gasping for breath, she gets knocked down and Hawkeye comes out of nowhere and tackles her into the window of an abandoned building to protect her. And it's in this building that the hero speech is given. And you see this in most classic hero movies, where an older, wiser mentor like Obi-Wan in Star Wars to Luke Skywalker, and the mentor imparts a critical piece of advice in a critical moment to their student. Now, Jeremy Renner, as Hawkeye, doesn't really know the Scarlet Witch well at this point other than having had to face off with them numerous times when they were on the side of Ultron and essentially being in conflict with the Scarlet Witch and her brother Quicksilver for most of the movie. But it is hinted when in the very middle of the movie you have the classic going to the family scene to regroup, which is another trope of these kind of movies, but is a huge surprise that it's Hawkeye's family. And Whedon, always wanting to keep things light, even when he's using a Hollywood trope, has Tony Stark sort of be the voice of the audience, where when he sees the wife, he's like, oh, she must be an agent, and then he sees the kids and their mini-agents, and then um, has that great line where... Um, Linda Cardellini, who plays uh, Renner's wife, who plays Hawkeye's wife, just like, hi, I know all your names. And <laughs> Tony Stark is like, um, you know, we're sorry to drop in on you like this, but we were too busy not knowing that you existed. Tony Stark, who is such a brilliant character that he is one of the heroes that's hardest to relate to just because he's so rich and so brilliant, um, but at the same time, is the one that's always cracking jokes to lighten the tension and, you know, to make what could be a corny moment, like the family reunion that you didn't see coming, you know, into a, a, a touching but funny aspect of the movie and to keep everything kind of light and flowing. Just really quickly about the family stuff, there are some nerds who did not like this, and I think, you know, it, it's not that surprising um, I, I think there's sort of two reasons why nerds might have not liked this. One is some just want action the entire time, or at least, you know, as little drama and, uh, you know, emotion as possible um, in their comic book movies, even though comic books are filled with themes of family and love and devotion and respect and emotion and sensitivity. Um, and so I don't really have a lot of sympathy there. If you didn't like the dynamics of how it worked, that's fine. I personally thought that uh, Linda Cardellini and Jeremy Renner had very, very good chemistry overall, considering she came out of nowhere. It grounds um, Black Widow, who we know is a good friend of, of Renner's, and so it was nice to see that she was the one person that knew that this family existed and she had a relationship with the family, with the wife and the kids as well. Um, and is is nice to see, but also makes more tragic when you find out she can't have children. But it's nice to see that you know she has you know children through um, Hawkeye, her best buddy. I really like that aspect of uh, the the movie. You know, people get hung up on the comic book stuff, and 
if you've listened to my podcast, I love when comic book elements are able to be integrated as much as possible, both in terms of action, but also plot and characterization. But I've also said that in the end, I just want to create cinematic experience. And when you have a movie like The Avengers, you're going to have to tweak the personalities of some of the characters. Because, for example, Hawkeye is really the wisecracking one in The Avengers, even more so than Tony Stark in terms of the comics. And he's also quite a Lothario. He's a ladies' man. He'd be the last one you'd think to get married. And so, you know, this is a classic case of nerds just not thinking it through and realizing that this uh, sequence is so crucial to both the plot and the characters. Just go with it, people. And it works because Renner's a great actor. Because Cardellini, who, you know, I've never really understood why she never was more famous. I mean, she was phenomenal as a kid on Freaks and Geeks, and then she was on ER and a few other things. But she's just so convincing here as, as the supportive, loving, but very intelligent mom and wife. But Linda Cardellini as Hawkeye's wife... It wasn't just to show that he had a wife and kids, but she delivered crucial moral points about and within the story. And this is where Hawkeye, as I mentioned in um, previous uh, review of Avengers Age of Ultron, this is where Hawkeye really takes the lead dramatically in the movie and becomes really the fulcrum with Nexus around which the drama unfolds and it's because he is the most human of all the Avengers. We already kind of thought that that might be the case, not because of his lack of superpowers necessarily, but because he, you know, he, while him and Black Widow are sort of equal in terms of like fighters and stuff, they um, are very different personality wise. You know, even before we knew about Black Widow's past, we knew it was very dark and that she was very disturbed and traumatized. He seems more just like a straight up you know, stud and and fighter and just overall kind of grounded guy in the family aspect just sort of proves this. But it's also in his discussion with his wife about what's going on where he brings up the twins and you can tell he's really been thinking about it and he, you know, sort of calls them a couple punks. You can tell he was sort of half-hearted saying that, but he does say, you know, pretty definitively, you know, someone's got to teach him some manners and his wife says... Is that someone going to be you? And it's left unanswered, but you can sort of tell that Hawkeye is already kind of thinking about this possibility. And in that way, um, from a psychological standpoint, he's already moved well beyond the other Avengers who are just too busy being angry and upset with the twins, which is understandable. But Renner sees past that. He sees their potential even from the beginning. And... You know, he's called Hawkeye for a reason, and that's what makes the joke so great, where he's the last person to realize, despite the fact that Scarlett Johansson, uh, Black Widow, is his best buddy, and despite the fact that he's called Hawkeye for his, you know, uh, perceptive abilities, he's the last one to realize that there's something going on between Banner and uh, Romanoff, um, Natasha Romanoff, Black Widow. And Cardellini has, you know, a great couple lines here, whereas he's like, oh, you're so cute. And I'll explain it to you when you're older, Hawkeye. So, but in general, he is very perceptive. The way Cap is sort of has an instinctive perceptiveness. And so Hawkeye's already beginning to think about how to handle these kids without having to, you know, kill them, essentially. 
and you know he had great moments already um, up to this point in the movie with both of the twins you know one of the running gags is Quicksilver constantly knocking him over and saying bet you didn't see that coming or calling him old man hurry up and he was the only one not to be mind controlled at some point by the Scarlet Witch in a line that um, the audiences always clap at for the most part when I went to go see the movie which showed they'd seen the first Avengers and knew that he was mind controlled the whole time by Loki or most of the time and everyone was excited for him not to be mind controlled in this movie and so the Scarlet Witch when they're in Africa tries to get into his head he kind of senses her smells her and uses one of his you know specialized arrows just sticks it in her head and it just kind of short circuits her brain temporarily and then of course Hawkeye says the line we've all been waiting for where he looks at Scarlet Witch twitching and says I've done the whole mind control thing before not a fan which is both Hawkeye speaking but also Jeremy Renner who is excited to be um, a non-mind-controlled um, Avenger, uh, unlike the first movie. And of course, <laughs> shortly thereafter, uh, but he gets knocked over again by Quicksilver, who he, who runs away with his temporarily disabled sister, and Renner's just on the ground. He's like, yeah, you better run. You better run. So, you know, he's he's getting a sense of them, but he has this paternal instinct, because he's the only one who's really a father, as far as I can tell. And so... You know, he's. It's not that he's looking past what the twins are doing, how bad it is, but he is, you know, thinking a few steps, you know, down the road, which is that these are kids. They're being manipulated by Ultron. They have great power that they're not sure what to do with other than, you know, create havoc, and that they probably would make great allies. But even more, you know, Hawkeye is used to, you know, as his wife says, kind of taking care of the team because. The characters with the greatest superpowers, you know, Cap and Thor and, and, and Tony and uh, and the Hulk are all very, very psychologically disturbed in different ways and for various reasons. So Renner is sort of the um, if you know if if Cap is sort of the moral heart of the movies, um, the Avengers movies and in, in the Marvel movies, and I would say Hawkeye now is sort of the soul. Um, because he's the guy that we can relate to and who we are seeing things through at this point. But in that classic scene where he shoves Elizabeth Olsen through the window and he gives her the hero speech and he's trying to motivate her and calm her down and make her realize her potential and her power and all of these tropes for hero movies. But you don't even really think about this being a trope because of the writing and because Renner's delivery is so brilliant and, and spot on. Hawkeye here is not calm. He's not a Jedi. You know, with the hero speech, it's usually from, you know, a much older and wiser and more experienced um, mentor or teacher and usually follows the sort of, you know, Jedi uh, manual of, you know, just sort of um, stoic philosophy to get you, you through it. But you can see here that you know, Hawkeye's not calm. He's very anxious and nervous about the situation, which is the response of a normal person, which makes him the per perfect uh, person to talk to Elizabeth Olsen, Scarlet Witch here. And, you know, in the middle of this epic battle, he doesn't really have time to give Scarlet Witch a long speech, but he tries to anyway. And, 
you know, Elizabeth Olsen is sobbing now because she thinks this is all her fault, which, you know, isn't completely the case because um, Tony Stark and Bruce Banner are at fault for creating Ultron. Hydra was at fault for, you know, kidnapping them and experimenting them, um, experimenting on them since they were kids. And they've just been manipulated um, by everybody in their lives since they were, you know, little kids growing up in Sokovia. Of course, it's possible Ultron may have been defeated earlier on in the movie and not gotten to this point if he hadn't had the help of the Scarlet Witch and her brother Quicksilver until they realized how wrong what he was doing um, was. And as she's sort of, you know, crying and covering her head, Scarlet Witch is just you know, saying, oh, this is all my fault, this is all our fault. And Jeremy Renner just says, okay, it's your fault, it's everybody's fault, who cares whose fault it is? And rather than just giving her some cliched, corny, you know, hero speech in order to motivate her, Hawkeye, Jeremy Renner, just goes, look, all I know is the city's flying, and he pauses and says it again for a fact, the city's flying, and there's a giant robot army, and I have a bow and arrow, and and none of this makes sense. And you really cannot pack more Whedonisms into, you know, 20 or 30 seconds of dialogue. But eventually, I'm not really sure which way Scarlet Witch is going to go. Is she's going to lose her cool? You know, Hawkeye realizes he needs to get back out there. And so he says, you know, despite all this, I'm going back out there because this is my job. And I can't babysit you, so... If you want, you can stay here. I'll have your brother come get you. If you go out there and you fight to kill, you're an Avenger. Just like that. And then, you know, he Elizabeth Olsen's still kind of paralyzed. Hawkeye just sort of mumbles himself. And he, you know, some blast comes through the wall and almost hits him. And as he's you know, about to kick down the door with three arrows notched on his on his bow, just says, the city's flying, city's flying. And, uh... You know, I mean, it's such an obvious thing to make fun of, a flying city, but we didn't just knew how to phrase it, which character to give it to, and when to use it. And he used it in the most critical speech in the movie, my favorite scene of the movie, which has two of my favorite characters in the movie. And it is just, you know, this is the, the, the wave or the wink that I mentioned in the humor section that is just Joss Whedon putting his final stamp on... Um, you know, one of the most epic movies ever made. I would argue the most epic Earth-based movie ever made. Certainly the most comic booky movie ever made. And yet has that grounded Joss Whedon humor. And, you know, as we expect, when needed most, Elizabeth Olsen just pushes through these double doors with this just furious walk and gaze and is just amazing. And her superpowers are now on just a whole nother level. And she is just driven and you know really takes over the battle at that point and you, you've seen the development in her um, just in those couple minutes between when she was sobbing and now becoming a full-fledged Avenger. In fact she's arguably more powerful than a lot of the Avengers. You know she doesn't have Captain America's you know super strength or super durability but her energy fields you know can take out so many enemies at once and so many different types of enemies and do so many different things and while 
Whedon did a great job of not revealing this until the very, very, very end, is eventually, as in the comics, able to fly. Um, but I like that they kept her grounded, literally and figuratively, and then that was an awesome little surprise at the very, very, very end, where she's the final Avenger, new Avenger, to pop in on screen, and she's sort of, you can see she's just starting to kind of get mastery over her flying powers as well, but this is just her shooting energy blasts and destroying everything in her path. Let's not forget, she was able to cripple Thor using her mind powers, and Thor's a demigod. Not that many people can cripple Thor. You'd think, you know, you'd have to defeat him physically, which is almost impossible. So in order to uh, defeat Thor, at least temporarily, you need to find other means. And this is what makes Scarlet Witch such a wild card going forward because, you know, she's on the good guy's side now and because of the death of her brother and the near destruction or, or destruction of her, her home, um, you know, she's very motivated to be an Avenger, but in the comics she's incredibly unstable. Um, she, I mean, she's also a mutant in the comics and the daughter of Magneto, but I won't talk about the spat between um, Fox and um, Disney in terms of rights, but, you know, Joss really kept the door open, saying that, you know, she is a good guy at the moment, but because of, you know, how delicate her, her brain is and, and how um, crippling her powers can be both to herself and others is, is just a really cool wild card going forward. But, you know, that scene with Renner, with the hero speech, which sort of cemented, you know, or at least pushed forward the, the father-daughter relationship, and we'll see if they explore that more in Captain America Civil War, where they both are going to be prominently featured. But, you know, the city's flying, the city's flying, I got a bow and arrow, None of this makes sense, and, you know, I'm Hawkeye, and I can kick ass, sort of, but even for me, this might be out of my league, but I'm just going to do it, and I'm going to bring you along for the ride, because we need you, and because I see something in you. Whedon just knows how to poke fun at himself and his movies without insulting them, and it actually enhances them, and there are really very few directors out there who can do that and who can pull that off in such a entertaining but also, you know, uh, touching way without being corny or too over the top. And this will conclude the trilogy of Avengers Age of Ultron podcasts. Each one was a little different. The first was defending Joss Whedon against some um, haters out there. The second was a non-spoiler review. And this was a very spoilery and very fun, at least for me, last little look at what made this movie so fun and so entertaining and really I think groundbreaking in a lot of ways so very much appreciate y'all listening I will be back soon and the bizzle is out